I'm a firm believer that when we go out and say, I'm going to find some opportunities, we find them. You know, you, you call it an energy field you plug into, or you can do it through prayer or meditation, whatever your religious philosophy might be. But if you ask that question, how can I help someone? You get an answer every day. It's, it's pretty cool. And so just going out and deciding, I want to think more about someone else than me, and I want to do something. And there's a lot of research that shows if you if you do good deeds, that you're happier that day than if you don't do good deeds. You're happier than if you do something for yourself. So, Richard Paul Evans, the author, is a friend of mine. Welcome to the Jeff Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show is part two of our interview with Mike Lauser. Mike, will you tell people about your new book and tell us another one of your favorite stories from it? Yeah, the book's One People, One Planet, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. And that emphasis on happy together is, is really important. If you look at all the happiness books, there's a lot of them, and they're really good. But if you look at the list of things they tell you to do, it's, you know, set some goals, get control of your morning, accomplish something important every day, get into good, good health, go do things that are fun for you. You know, those are great, but they're pretty insular. They're kind of self-centered. They, all of the research that I've studied and all the uh, ancient texts I've studied show that the ultimate form of happiness comes only in relationships with other people, in the context of relationships. So that's, you know, that subtitle, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together, I think is really important and makes the book unique. And one of those concepts, it's, they're very simple. It's refrain from judging other people. It's about our biases. So the first thing we have to admit is that we all have them and we're not bad because we have them. You know, bad people don't have biases and good people. I mean, bad people have biases, good people don't. We all have them because our human perception is limited. And so when we have these biases, what happens is we see some very superficial cues, someone's race or their ethnicity or where they're from, where they went to school. And then because we can't see the whole person, we fill in all the missing pieces and construct a personality for them, just like we construct for ourselves. And that those perceptions are always incomplete. They're often inaccurate and they're usually dead wrong. And so in this chapter, Refrain from Judging, we really kind of show through research and stories that if if you are prone to judge constantly, you, you divide yourself from others and put people into groups, which limits, it reduces your interest in even getting to know them. And so one of the stories I tell that I love is about Arshe Cooper, who I've met in the last few years. Arshe grew up in Chicago. He grew up right in the midst of the gangs there. He had to walk through three or four gang territories to get to high school. He was chased. He was beaten up. He stepped over dead bodies. He saw blood in the streets. He couldn't wear his hat the wrong way or wear the wrong colors. And I mean, life was really, really tough. His mother was a drug addict, no father in the family. And one day someone came to his school and introduced the idea of, of rowing, you know, rowing teams. And they tried to recruit these students from Manly High School into these into this rowing team. And they weren't having any of it because most of them could swim. And the people promoting the rowing team were, you know, white people, a man and a lady, and they didn't like white people. And, but Arshay reluctantly signed up because he liked the woman and he, he trusted women. He, he knew he was raised by his mom and his grandma. And she said, this is going to be a great experience. So they finally got some guys in this boat and they were from rival gangs. And one of the first things they learned is that their real negative perceptions of each other, their hatred towards each other came from things they had heard about each other, not from any interaction whatsoever with each other. And they started telling their stories. They realized that they'd all been through trauma. They all had the same problems. They were way more alike than they were different. And they had joined these gangs for family and support and for friendship. And these teams started gelling in these boats and uh, they became best friends. They were rival gang members that became best friends. So the cool thing that RJ did, he said, hey, Arshane said, if this works with rival gang members, it'll probably work with the Chicago Police Department. So they went and got some actual white cops to come and uh, join them on this rowing team. <laughs> and they'd go out rowing together with a, 
you know, a gang man, former gang member and a white policeman, a former convict and a white policeman, and they became best friends. And so he's got a movie out called The Most Beautiful Thing and a book by the same name. And what he really preaches is that, you know, it's easy to hate from a distance. It's hard to hate up close. And if we actually spend time with people that are different than we are, that's the absolute key. You can't just read about other people. You have to spend time with them working on projects like their rowing team. And those biases just fall away. And, and the reason that produces greater happiness is we have more friends now. We have more people we can be friends with because we've dropped those judgments. So that's another one of the concepts. And there's some great stories, uh, other stories in the book about judging others. Yeah, that's great. I feel like we talked a little bit about this at lunch. And, you know, I know in part one, we talked about, you know, how you'd come out of academics and then go into business, building 600 person companies, 2000 wholesalers, sell big public companies. But I think one of the things that I really appreciated about you is the intentionality of the way you go about things and that you internalize a lot of what you're learning and try to shape your life around it. Can you talk about, you know, the study you did to come up with these principles and, and where these ideas came from for you? Yeah. I had an opportunity to go work in Saudi Arabia at a university, the King's University, called the University of Petroleum, Petroleum and Minerals. And they told me, this was kind of interesting, they said, you can't talk about politics, absolutely, or you'll be fired. And you can't talk about religion, or you'll be fired. How do you feel about that? I said, that's okay. It's your country. It's, you know, I'm a guest. And when I got there, all these Saudi friends of mine wanted to talk about religion. I kept saying, hey, I can't do this. And they said, no, 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 no. You can't talk about your face, but we can talk to you about ours. And I said, okay, I'll listen. And so I got connected with one of the holy leaders there and he taught me all about the Islamic faith. And he also taught me uh, Arabic. So that was the deal. He'd teach me Arabic if I'd listen to his Islamic discussions. And the thing that I was so impressed with is that if you strip away the mysteries, the supernatural, like, did we live before this life? Are we going to live after this life? What's the nature of God? If you strip all that out and you just read these original texts where these great leaders talked about how to be happy on earth, how to build good relationships, how to build civil communities, then I, I felt like I was reading the same literature from the Christian literature and the Islamic literature. And so that led me on this quest and became kind of a student of world religions. I did the same thing with Hinduism and Buddhism. And I, I went to the original tents, not all the breakaway groups, but the original writings of the prophet Muhammad, the original writings of Buddha and the writings of the Hindu sages. Again, stripping out things that are mystical and looking just at lifestyle. What do they teach us about happiness and civility and relationships? And, and basically I kept hearing the same things over and over and over again. And after I, I've been doing that for years and I've been taking notes. And then I thought, you know, not everyone likes organized religion anymore. So let's look at philosophy. So I did the same thing with philosophy. And then most recently, I did that same deep dive with the research for positive psychology for the last 20 years. And everything merged together. It's like ancient wisdom merged with modern day science. And the modern day science shows absolutely these things make our lives better in real time. You know, if you do any of these things today, you'll be happier today. And if you do them over a longer period of time, they just become permanent parts of your, your life. Your life's not going to get e easier, but you're going to be able to cope with it better and you'll be happier than you would have been otherwise. And so I just have had this real desire to share these concepts. And, you know, I'm very busy, but when COVID hit the first summer, I was scheduled to travel around the world and every single trip was canceled. So I had my summer free. So I pulled out all this data. I wrote half the book the first summer of COVID. I wrote the second half of the book the second summer of COVID. So finally, I finally finished it. So I, 
For me, it's fun. I mean, it's one of the reasons I love this show is doing over 700 episodes with all these high achievers and getting to hear the commonalities. Like I get to learn so many new things because I get people from so many different backgrounds, but it's so interesting. It's almost as interesting to hear over and over and over that the highest achievers have so many things in common, which I shouldn't have been shocked. I was actually hoping I would find out what those things were, but it feels like you got to do that, but over centuries. Well, I, yeah, I've been working on it. I've interviewed, I started interviewing entrepreneurs for my first book over 20, almost 25 years ago. And uh, that, you know, that's how we teach. We, we teach through stories. We teach through people that have actually done what we're trying to teach. So we've interviewed hundreds of entrepreneurs and now we've interviewed psychologists and social workers and people who have changed their lives. And the greatest, you know, I liked going to school. I like doing a master's and a PhD, but I've learned so much more from just interviewing people that are successful that have a story to tell. Well, and my point is you take these 20 years of interviews you've done, plus those religious texts from how many centuries ago, plus the philosophers and, and then also the modern research and getting to see the commonalities across generations, across cultures. It must be very confirming. Yeah, it's been, I feel like I've had a dream career. I, you know, I just, I love what I do. I've always been able to do something that I enjoy. Feel very fortunate. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm loving these stories. Let's, let's do a couple more of your favorite stories from the book. So the next chapter uh, is give up the ego is the first one, then refrain from judging. And this one is do good deeds daily. And this is basically deciding that you're going to forget about yourself. You're going to go out, you're going to pay attention and look for simple ways to help anyone that you might meet that day. So it can be carrying groceries for someone. It can be talking to someone that's having a bad day. It can be calling up a friend and just simple, almost random deeds where you do good things and you look for opportunities. And I, I'm a firm believer that when we go out and say, I, I want to find some opportunities, we find them. You know, you, you call it an energy field you plug into, or you can do it through prayer or meditation, whatever your religious philosophy might be. But if you ask that question, how can I help someone? You get an answer every day. It's, it's pretty cool. And so just going out and deciding, I want to think more about someone else than me, and I want to do something. And there's a lot of research that shows if you, if you do good deeds, that you're happier that day than if you don't do good deeds. You're happier than if you do something for yourself. So Richard Paul Evans, the author, is a friend of mine, and he tells this great story he shared with us when he spoke, and I've talked to him about it, but when he was becoming a really famous New York Times bestselling author, his marriage was falling apart. He was out on the road traveling and writing stories and collecting data, and it, it got so bad that he was out of town in Atlanta, and his wife was home. And they had a really, really rough conversation. He thought his marriage was over and that just broke his heart. And he really thought about it, meditated about it, prayed about it. And he said he felt like he, he got an answer. The answer was he knew what he needed to do to make it better and to give it a chance. So he went home and that next morning he said to his wife, he said, what can I do today to make your day better? She said, what are you talking about? He says, no, I just, I want to do something nice for you today. Okay, go clean the garage. So he went and cleaned the garage. The next day, what can I do to make your life better? And she says, why are you doing this? He said, I just want to, I want to try. What can I do? Okay, go clean the kitchen. So he did that for about a month. And then they just broke down and had this incredible conversation that where did, how did we end up here? And they were just neglecting each other. And so she started saying, well, how can I make your life better? And then they just started really serving each other. And they didn't let a day go by where they didn't do something nice and kind. And he tells the story in the book that 
he not only likes his wife, he loves her to death and he needs her and they have the best relationship they've ever had. And I, so I have lots of stories in there about, you know, a guy, a friend of mine who was hit by a car and paralyzed from the neck down and very suicidal and uh, he didn't think he could ever live in a wheelchair and he decided the same thing. He gave up his himself, got up every morning and takes him twice as long to get dressed and, uh, you know, get into his car and go to work. And he just said, I, if I think about me, I'm, I'm not going to make it. So he, he goes out every day looking for things to do. And he's probably the most, you know, the coolest guy that I'm sitting with. He's like sitting with this wise sage, but his life's been devoted to just trying to contribute every day. So that's, that's the next concept. Well, I feel like we're on a roll. Let's keep going. Okay. The fourth one is, uh, this one is an interesting one. It's about judging or no, it's about forgiveness. We, as we get more and more involved with people, we become happier, but relationships are tough. They're not, they're not real easy. We have to work at them. And we, offend each other. And there's a ton of research on holding grudges and not forgiving. And one professor at the University of Wisconsin has done over a hundred studies and, and holding on to grudges basically cankers our own soul. It doesn't hurt the person we're angry at or mad at. And if we can let go of these hard feelings, there's a great quote from Buddha in the Pali Canon, which I've studied. He says, there's three kinds of people in the world. There's people that are like a lion etched in stone. There's another group of people that are like a lion etched in the sand. And there's a third group that are like a lion etched in the water. And the people that are like a lion etched in stone hold on to anger and grudges for a long, long time. And that really hurts them. It, it inhibits their happiness, hijacks their happiness. Those like a lion etched in dirt, it, it goes away eventually, but it takes a while. And if you become a lion etched in water, you just say, hey, we're all works in progress. That person tomorrow will be different than they are today. I'm not going to hold a grudge. That's what we're all striving for. But the best story, the one that touched me the most was a woman, her name is Sai Snar. And her son was 18 years old, new graduate from high school, first summer out of high school. And he was shot and killed. It was a random killing by a guy that just shot him, just walked up to him and shot him and killed him. And Sai was a shell of a person for almost 20 years. She was depressed. She hated life. She was angry. She didn't think life was worth living. She, she was so angry at the person that killed her son and his family and his attorneys. She just was full of hatred. Her sitter life was just pure. And she eventually got a letter from the guy from prison where he, he really took full responsibility and said he was a young, stupid kid and he regrets it. A day goes by where he doesn't regret it. And he says, don't hold this against my family. They're good people. It's not their fault. And so one thing led to another and she, now she talks to him on the phone every week. They write letters to each other and she's visited him in the prison. She's had his family over for dinner. She absolutely loves the guy. She said, it's ironic that I love this guy and his family. The way that I know him is because he killed my son. And so we have stories like that in the book that are just unbelievable. So forgiveness. You know, I think if Sysenar can forgive, it took her a long time. And she said she's happier than she's ever been. And she doesn't judge people. And she cuts people slack. And she tries to understand why they do things. She's a line etched in wire. Yeah. Oh, that's an incredible story. She actually, we've on our website, we've got this training program. We have her full story, the video, where she actually reads the letter from the, the guy that murdered her son that he wrote. He re she reads the full letter on the video. It's very touching. Go to One People, One Planet. You can see that training program in those videos. Wow, that's incredible. Let's let's keep going. It's too much. <laughs> I feel like that's such a sobering story. It's so impactful. I've got others like that in the book that uh, are just... You know, I've been 
so blessed by knowing these people, hearing these stories. But the next one is sharing our material resources. So there's a lot of these, these great religious leaders and philosophers all talked about the, the problem of becoming attached to the material world and falling in love with the material world. And uh, there's nothing wrong with having possessions of even great wealth. But the research all shows that, you know, we need a certain amount of money to live up to a certain point, and that helps with our happiness and peace of mind. But as you earn more than that, it doesn't do anything at all. Doubling your that amount doesn't make you twice as happy. In fact, as you triple it and it gets bigger, you even have more problems. And so this concept of is just being willing to share. We're all part of the same family and not getting attached to things, decluttering our lives, sharing things above and beyond what we need for our basic existence. And there's just a lot of research that we're happier if we give things away than if we keep and hoard them. And so we've got some great stories about people that are giving away great wealth and small wealth. And, you know, John Huntsman is a good example. You know, people say, well, he's given away more than a billion dollars, but he's a billionaire. Well, the truth is, is in his first career, he was in the military and he decided that he was going to give away 10 or 20% of his check every month to someone in need. He was making $300 a month, giving away $50 a month. So he wouldn't be attached to those things. And he's done that his whole, he did that his whole life. And as his wealth got greater, he gave away more. And so it's been really interesting. We're painting our whole house right now. So we had to move everything off our shelves and all our clothes out of our closets. We had to take them down to the basement. I start sorting through this stuff. And, you know, I have clothes I haven't worn for 10 years. Suits, sweaters, coats. And I, I keep them because I think, oh, someday I might take this to the cleaners and wear it. And I thought someone else could have been wearing this for 10 years. And so we're getting rid of everything. We're, we're buying new minimalist furniture. We're getting rid of anything we haven't used for a year. And our home is clean and it feels less crowded and, you know, just getting rid of stuff and not being attached to stuff. There's actually a, a disorder called, you know, anxious attachment. We get so attached to things that we start fearing we're going to lose them and then they lose their value for us. They don't, they don't make us happy anymore. We devalue with them as we become more attached to them. So that's the next one. And the, the last one, in every community, we have needy people that are, that are hungry, that have illnesses. And if every person can find one person in need and help that one person that you know, maybe can't get out of the situation they're in, then it raises up the entire community. The whole, we're all connected. And so we raise those people up. The whole community benefits. And a great story that was just told to me a few weeks ago, there was a, a homeless gentleman that was homeless for years. And he finally, he got some mentoring and some help and he got a job. And his first paycheck, he went to uh, Kmart and filled the shopping cart full to the top, spent his whole check and went out and gave it to other people. And because he knew what it was like. And so this, you know, idea of just, uh, these principles all go together. You know, you, you give up your ego and then you start, enjoying other people more and you quit judging them and then you start making more friendships and then you do you're more inclined to do good deeds and as you have more friendships you have more friction at times and you have to learn to forgive each other and and then you realize that you know I want to share because I'm part of a community and then you start finding people that really need our help and uh, you just keep cycling through those simple six concepts and you know life gets better it's kind of interesting the one of the things I found in my research the millennial generation they're bailing out of organized religion faster than any other demographic in the country. And they just don't like the structure and the rules and it's not satisfying them. But what they do in the process, they tend to throw out the principles that they've learned in that structure. And so they're kind of, a lot of them are floundering and they're looking for something to grab hold of. And so my hope is that, you know, you don't have to be part of a religion or believe Muhammad or Buddha or Christ 
to live these great principles. They will, they will make your life better just by living them. And that's what all these great religious founders taught. They, they all said, hey, try it and see if it works. They never forced anyone to live these concepts. Uh, they believed in them with all their hearts, but they said, if you, if you live these, you'll see some change. So go, go try it. See if your life goes from kind of a darker period to a brighter period. And I, I read another study. This is interesting. If, if you have spiritual roots, you don't have to be part of an, a church organization or a religion, but if you have some spiritual roots, uh, you've grounded yourself in some spiritual concepts. High school, college students are 62% less likely to ever contemplate suicide. And if you're part of a community that practices those values, whether you're it's a church or community or whatever, you're 82% less likely to ever consider suicide. So again, it's finding some values that anchor you, that lead to happiness, that are proven, they lead to happiness, better relationships, better communities, and then participating in that community. And that's what this modern technological world has stripped away from us. So that's my hope, you know, if we can help some people, it'll be, it'll be great. I'll be happy. Such a great message. Such a great book. I'm looking forward to it. Although I don't know why you have to wait to get the audio book out. Now I'm going to wait till, I'm going to have to wait till July, Mike, to get the audio. You know, it, it's funny. I, I experienced some pretty good, at least what I thought was pretty good financial success early in my twenties. You know, I made, you know, quite, quite large amounts of money for regular society. And, uh, and I got to do some things that, you know, none of my friends had ever done. Nobody I ever knew had done, but I had this like really defining moment. Like I'd been working on our charity for probably maybe like seven years. And I went and spent a week at an aftercare facility in Nicaragua. And like that form of service where it was needed so much was, was a way better high than any of the private jets or meeting movie stars or any of the cool stuff, you know, driving the fast cars and things. And like, that probably isn't shocking to anybody listening, but like, to me, I had built up that stuff so much that that was the pinnacle and that's what it was all about. And so it was interesting how like walking down a dirt road past little dirt huts of tinfoil roofs with like these little kids who've been you know, rescued from, from abuse and, and their moms going to play soccer with a crappy soccer ball at a crappy soccer uh, field it was like more rewarding than all these fancy things that the media would normally have covered, you know, and it's last night, you know, so two of my favorite movies might seem different to different to people, but one of them is Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Probably have seen yeah. that one. Great, the other great one, movie. I love it. Which I think is basically the same movie. It's Groundhog Day with Special Ops is the Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow, the Live, Die, Repeat. I don't know if you saw that one, but you know, I've been working a bunch of, you know, been working a bunch of 15 hour days and feeling a bit lonely and, and like not connecting with people like you're talking about. And so I decided to quit work early last night and go home and spend time with my family. And I thought, I'm just going to watch the end of Groundhog Day, like the last five minutes before I go home. <laughs> and it's so evident, you know, like it, it, you quickly remember like all the selfish things he does for most of the movie. And that last day of his life, it's just, it's, it's all about people and service. And he's just so genuinely content and genuinely happy. It's funny to me that I need the reminder to that so often when it's so obvious. Everybody knows it as soon as I say it here on the episode. And yeah, I find myself needing the reminder. So I'm looking forward to your book. I can help remind myself. Yeah, you know, these, I was in a podcast this week earlier and the host said, you know, this is amazing. Why don't we know about these principles? They've been on the earth for 5,000 years. And they're so simple, but you know, if you were raised in one faith, say you were raised Christian, you're you're probably not going to be inclined to go read the Buddhist literature or the Hindu literature. Or you know, we have. I feel really sad. I've lived in the Middle East and I have many Muslim friends, and and it's the Islamic faith kind of gets a bad bad rap here in America because of a few of the more militant sects. But I mean, 
I think the Prophet Muhammad was a rock star. If you read what he wrote, he was a humble man. He was a very generous man. He gave a sermon just before he died. His last excursion into Mecca, he gave a sermon. And it's a, it's a human rights sermon, you know, 1,500 years before its time, where he says, hey, no Arab is above a non-Arab, and no Muslim's above a non-Muslim, and no man's above a woman. And it was a plea for to humanity to, to get along. And, you know, when he went back into Mecca and the people that had abused him and, you know, killed some of his followers and his followers were excited to go back into Mecca and start killing people. And he said, hey, we're, no, we're not, there's no bloodbath. We're going in to forgive them and create relationships with them. And just, there's just such amazing history that has been revealed that we just don't read or learn about. And, you know, so, when, you know my attempt was to highlight some of that. That's great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to next month when the audiobook is out. So I can go through it all. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll actually have the I'll actually have the audio book in about a week, but they want to publish it later for a second wave of promotions. And I, I'll get you a copy as soon as I get one. <laughs> you won't have to wait. <laughs> if I, I'm being an insider. I love it. Mike. One question I didn't get to ask is: I feel like later in my 30s, I discovered Stoicism, which I, you know, so many other people found beneficial for a long time. But did, I know you talked about philosophers. Did you get any? Did you get into any like the Gnostics or Stoics or anybody? Or yeah, did you look out on the on the blog? Yeah. So so Stoicism was really promoted by Seneca, the Roman. It was Cicero and then Seneca was next. And, and they introduced that philosophy of Stoicism, of, you know, just being positive and optimistic. And there's a, a level you want to attain in life and there's a level where you are and just go after it and close that gap and, you know, be aggressive about it. Yeah, I was able to read some of the great works of Seneca. In fact, let me take a peek here. You know, Cicero wrote On Duties which is almost like the Sermon on the Mount. You should really read that book. And he wrote a book on giving and Seneca and Cicero created just incredible insights, revealed some incredible insights about civility and relationships. You know, a lot of listeners of this show will be familiar with Tim Ferriss from the 4-Hour Workweek and all his other things. He produced some great books. You can get audiobooks of Seneca's letters that he produced, you know, pretty easy to consume and found helpful. Well, I know we said this in part one, but, but again, here as we finish up, can you tell people the best places to find the book and connect with you? Yeah, the book will be on all the retail sites on Amazon in all all versions, you know, hardback, softback, ebook, and the audiobook coming shortly after that. And then our website, onepeopleoneplanet.com has uh, a lot of material, some free, there's some free materials on there and some videos. Uh, there's our, our online training program. It's going to be used by high schools and universities, but we're selling a version of it to the public really cheap. The first week, the few weeks the book's out, we're practically going to give that program away, which has videos of all these people I've been talking about. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, thanks for making time for the interview and thanks for making time to write a great book that I feel like can actually help your fellow beings here. Yeah, Jess, thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you and I really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Bye, everyone.